help. God, we have in this book the mind of Christ given to us, revealed to us. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us confidence in the word, that you would give us the humility to subdue our own opinions and our own um, leanings and, and submit only to you. Father, help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take out your Bibles if you would. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And if you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1004. We've been studying the book of Hebrews together as a congregation for about four months now. It's been a, a huge joy to my life and a great encouragement to my walk with the Lord. Now, Hebrews was written to folks that were raised in Judaism, but they left it behind to follow Christ. That was a costly departure from some of them. They, they left the temple, they left their relationships, they left their social standing, and, and, and they've left all of that behind to follow the Lord Jesus. But now, some of them have begun to miss all those outward things, the, the temple and the relationships they had, and, and, and they miss being socially accepted rather than persecuted. And so what's happened is that some of them have decided it's, it's just not worth it. And they're beginning to depart from the faith. And so a couple of weeks ago, the writer had just begun to explain, Beloved, don't go back to Judaism. Because Jesus is a better high priest than what Judaism has to offer. And, and we've seen this a couple times. We're going to focus especially on it next week. But Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to examine that, Lord willing, next week. But it's some weighty theology as he starts to talk about Melchizedek. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, the author stopped and said, Hey, you know, this is, this is the kind of stuff that requires you to pay attention. Are you paying attention? You are paying attention, right? And, and, and then he said to him, we saw this at the end of chapter 5, early in chapter 6, have you become lazy in your hearing? And he gave them a warning, and the warning is you need to wake up because otherwise you might just drift away from the gospel as some have already done. And then last week he gave one of the starkest warnings in all of Scripture, that the reason people fall away from following Christ is because they have false faith. And that leads to what's called apostasy, departing from the faith. Now look with me as he continues in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to pick up at verse 9 today. Though we speak in this way, and he's talking about that stark warning that he's already outlined, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, 
obtain the promise. For people swear by, them, by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, making him a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. One of Satan's oldest and most insidious forms of attack on God's people has been the weapon of doubt. Whether it was to tempt Eve to doubt God's goodness towards her, or John the Baptist's dying questions about whether Jesus really was the Messiah, or Thomas' doubts about the resurrection, or the many doubts that are common to believers today, doubt has been a constant weapon in the arsenal of Satan from the very beginning. But in recent years, there's something new in the way that Satan uses the weapon of doubt. In our culture today, doubt has actually begun to be seen as a virtue. Doubt leaves a person open to accept many different truths, so long as he considers none of them to be true truths. And most often, one of the ways to seem intellectual or philosophical in our world is to doubt the truths of Christianity. So doubt the authority of Scripture. Doubt the divinity of Christ. And Satan often sets those doubts in our minds. Now despite all of that, doubt itself is not necessarily wrong. Doubt is simply asking questions and seeking a firmer understanding. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, sometimes we know it can be difficult to trust God and believe the truth. Sometimes the hardest part of the Christian life is to believe the God that we believe in. But doubt becomes sinful when we think we know more than God. When we look at biblical Christianity, when we look at the scriptures and we judge it according to our own assumptions and presuppositions about the world. And so sometimes what we call doubt today, and sometimes people in our world approach it as humility, they say they're being humble, it's actually the highest form of arrogance because what they're saying is, I want to see if God measures up to my standards. You know, the question for you and me is, what do we do with our doubts? We have to be willing, in a sense, to doubt our doubts. We have to be willing to take our doubts and expose them to scripture when you have doubts about the character of god or about the christian life the place to take those doubts is to the word of god charles spurgeon says that doubt is a foot poised either to go forwards or backwards that's where the hebrew believers were that received this letter they've heard the stark warning 
about false faith. They've seen people who once professed to be believers who have now fallen away. And the writer of the letters we've seen over the last couple of weeks gave a test. He said, are you maturing in the faith or are you perpetual toddlers? And as we've said, there's nothing wrong with being a toddler. But there's something wrong with being a 40-year-old toddler. We should be maturing. We should be developing. And as he's been telling them, if you're not moving towards maturity, you may be moving towards apostasy from eventually departing from the faith. But he also knows that there are some in his flock that have tender consciences who read these verses and say, am I really a Christian? Yeah, that's a good question to ask, isn't it? I would hope every person in this room would be willing to ask that question this afternoon. Am I really a believer? Is there evidence that, 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 that evidence, is there evidence that the Holy Spirit's working in me? Is there evidence that I'm clinging to Jesus Christ as my only hope? And while he wanted some in the congregation to see their false faith, at the same time, he doesn't want to cause true believers to doubt their faith. So look at verse 9. He says, I expect better things from you. I think your faith is sincere. I don't expect you to turn away. And then in verse 10, he says, you know, I'm confident. I'm confident because I see God's grace at work in you in the ways that you serve him and you love his name and the ways that you serve each other. You know, that's that's simply what Jesus said. By this, all people will know my disciples, that you love one another. And so he wants to comfort the congregation those who may have been unsettled by that warning against false faith by showing them evidences of God's grace in their lives. But at the same time, even those evidences, as, as, as convincing as they may be, cannot be the grounds of our hope. In other words, I can't hope in salvation because I, simply because I see God's Spirit at work in me. I hope in salvation because of what Jesus Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross. And he's saying to these folks, only Jesus can bear the weight of being the grounds of your hope. That's what this passage is addressing. God knows that, that true believers will sometimes struggle with doubt. But he desires for his children, his true children, to have assurance that we are his because of what Jesus has done. I want you to see three things this morning from this passage. First, we're going to look at the storms of doubt. Second, the stubbornness of God. And third, the steadfast hope. So first, the storms of doubt. God knows that Christians will face struggle with doubt in their lives. Many, many sincere believers, many wonderful believers will question whether God really loves them. And Satan will bring to mind ideas about how they're too sinful for God to really love them, how they're nothing but hypocrites. And doubt about salvation can be a real struggle for some very wonderful, sincere believers, many in this room. And God doesn't desire for his children 
who have trusted in Jesus Christ to go through life wondering, He loves me, He loves me not. He wants us to be grounded in a sure and certain hope. He knows that when doubt comes, if we just look outward to our circumstances, or if we look inward to our performance, assurance will never come. But if we look upward to Jesus, uh, then it can cast away doubt. Now, you might be thinking, I don't really struggle with doubt. I would actually argue every sin is born of doubt. Every sin is born of doubt because it's our way of saying we know better than what God knows. And so every time we sin, we're saying, I have a better way than God does. Just think about the ways that you might struggle with doubt. Have you ever been in the thick of affliction and wondered whether or not Romans 8.28 really applies, that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Have you ever doubted that? Have you ever looked at a huge pile of bills and a small balance in your bank account and, and wondered if Jesus really meant it for you when he said that your heavenly Father knows that you need those things, so seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you? Have you ever doubted that? Have you ever doubted Hebrews 13, 5, where it says that he will never leave us or forsake us? Have you ever doubted whether you should obey God's word even if it's going to be costly to you to do so? Have you ever doubted that God's presence is with you? I, I hear that a lot. People, people say, I just don't feel God with me anymore. And you doubt whether he is or whether he's even real. You know, each of us faces the storms of doubt in different ways, and at times it feels like the current is going to pull us away. That was the reality of life for these Hebrew Christians. They've given up so much to follow Christ, but they see persecution coming. They see others abounding, abandoning the faith, and they're wondering, is it really worth it? They're wondering if it's all real. They're wondering if Jesus can see them through the path that lays before them. Verse 12 tells us how we're to face the storms of doubt. It says, don't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, I want you to see something back in, in Hebrews 5, verse 11. We've already seen that word sluggish. Go back there for a moment. Verse 11, when he had been talking about Melchizedek, and then he stops, and he says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. That's the word sluggish. You've become lazy listeners. And so he's saying here, if you want assurance, if you want to overcome doubt, you can't be sluggish listeners. You have to pay wholehearted attention to the Word of God. You know, that's the context of Hebrews 11. Many of you know and love Hebrews 11. We'll get there in a few months. But Hebrews 11 is that hall of faith. It's, it's the heroes of the faith, which, as we'll see, uh, aren't really heroes at all. But they're people who patiently waited to inherit the promises. And then in verse 13, he narrows the focus down to one who patiently waited to inherit the promises. And that was Abraham. And we're going to look at Abraham's example. One of the things we need to realize is Abraham wasn't always a great example, was he? He really wasn't a great example at all. 
His adulterous sin with, with Hagar reminds us how he doubted God's promises. His lies to Abimelech show us how he doubted God's protection. In other words, this passage really isn't about Abraham, but it's about God and how stubbornly faithful God was to Abraham. That's the second thing I want you to see. We've seen the storms of doubt. Now I want you to see the stubbornness of God. And, and I think you probably are going, stubbornness? That doesn't sound very flattering. In our culture, stubbornness is viewed as, as a negative thing, but it's not a criticism when we say that God is stubborn. It's actually the grounds of our hope. He's not a fickle God who changes his mind when he learns something new. You know, God's never learned anything new at all. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He's not fickle towards people, loving people one day and then deciding that he's done with them the next day. There is a resoluteness about God, a stubbornness about God, and that is the thing that should cast out our doubts. Now, this reference to Abraham here takes us back to Genesis 22, which was our Old Testament reading, but let me summarize the story. God called Abraham to take Isaac, his son, the son of promise, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham, with unimaginable anguish, because he loved his son and certainly didn't want to lose his son, but more than that, it was through his son that the promises were going to come. But Abraham obeyed, even to the point of lifting the knife to kill Isaac when God stopped him and provided a ram. You know, Abraham knew the character of God. He knew that God wouldn't break his promises. So uh, if we were to keep reading into to Hebrews chapter 11, we would see that Abraham was sure that if God had to raise the boy from the dead, he could do that because God wouldn't break his promises. Look at verse 14 here in our text. It's a reference to Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, uh, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. How did God assure Abraham? Through an oath. It's been customary in almost every culture throughout history to swear by a higher authority than ourself. And so you go into a courtroom, you see the seal of the city or the county or the state. Why? Because they're reminding you, you are obliged to tell the truth, and if you're caught lying, a higher authority is going to deal with you. You know, the Jews, when they wanted to settle an argument, they would appeal to the name of Yahweh. That meant if, if they weren't telling the truth, they would not only break the ninth commandment, not to bear false witness, but they'd break the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. And they knew the rest of the third commandment. God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So the Hebrew people, if they were wanted to, to convince the person with whom they're arguing that they are telling the truth, they would say, I swear to Yahweh. And effectively they're saying, may God pour out his curse upon me if I'm lying. But now why do humans take oaths in the first place? Well, because naturally humans are liars, aren't we? You know, that was one of the first things that Adam and Eve did is, is they lied about, about what happened. 
They blamed each other. They, they didn't tell the whole truth. And so that's why in the courtroom we make people say, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, because we know there's a natural tendency to lie in the human heart. But you know, God has no such tendency, does he? Uh, that's what our text tells us. God doesn't lie. It's a reference to Numbers twenty-three nineteen. God is not like a man that he should lie. So if God cannot lie, why did he take an oath to Abraham? Why did he swear to Abraham? Not because we struggle with, not because he struggles with lying, but because we struggle with doubting. God pledges himself to Abraham. He swears by his own name. In other words, if I'm lying, then it completely discredits my character. In a sense, God stooped to take the stand to say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so that Abraham's faith would be strengthened. That's very kind that God wanted to do that for Abraham, who lived about 2,000 years before Hebrews was written, 4,000 years before our day. What difference does it make that God made an oath to Abraham. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now look at that word heirs. It's plural. He wasn't just talking to Abraham. It says heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? Look around. It's us. This oath applies as much to you and me as it does to Abraham. Look with me at Galatians 3 for a moment. I want you to see that, that these promises applied as much to Ab or apply as much to us as they did to Abraham. Galatians 3. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. God's saying to these struggling believers, listen, my children, you may be worried about a million different things, but do you know what? I will never let go of my children. I will never take my hand off the wheel. I will never forget about you. I've got it all under, my, under control, and I have stubbornly set my love upon you. I have given you my Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption, and I will see my promises through in your life till the end. That's what God was saying to Abraham, and that's what God's saying to the heirs of the promise, to you and me. Do you believe that? Do you ever struggle with wondering, could a God like that really love a sinner like me? It can be hard to believe that God is really for me when he has seen not only every action, but every thought that I've ever had. How could a God like that love somebody like me? How do I know? I want you to think back to that scene with Abraham. 
Abraham's love for God was such that he was willing to give up his own son. And God says to him in Genesis 32, 12, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham loved God so much that he was willing to give up probably his most dear earthly thing in Isaac. But he didn't have to. You know why? Why why didn't Isaac get killed on the altar? Because his death wouldn't have accomplished anything. Isaac could not die for anybody else's sins. But God's own son would die to accomplish the salvation of all the elect. Think about it this way. The ram died as a substitute for Isaac, and the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, died as a substitute for us. How do you know that God loves us? How do you know that he's not going to change his mind about us? How do you know that the gospel is true? Because he didn't withhold his own son. That's how you know that God loves us. We look at what Jesus did for us. Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's saying, if I would give my son, you can trust me with everything. God's saying there, trust my stubbornness. I will not change my mind. And then that's exactly what the end of Hebrews 6 is going to do. It's going to give us these pictures of the steadfast hope that we have through Jesus Christ. That's, That's the third thing in the text. God wants us to see that our hope can't be found in ourselves or our circumstances or our performance, but it's found only in looking to Christ. In Hebrews, the word hope is never a subjective attitude. It doesn't say our hope or hopefulness. It's an objective reality rooted in what Jesus has done. And so we get several images here of that hope. Look at verse 19. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You know, in the ancient world that didn't have weather channel and didn't have GPS— They didn't have phones and radios. The anchor was the most important thing you had when you were at sea. Because if a ship was well anchored, the the winds could blow, but the ship wouldn't be washed away or headed for the rocks. The anchor is a symbol of security. As long as your anchor holds, you won't drift away. And you can see, if you've been tracking with us over the last few months, this study of of Hebrews, the warning is don't drift away, don't fall away. So how do we not drift away? We must be anchored to the Lord Jesus by faith. Do you know what happens if, spiritually speaking, you are not anchored to Christ? If you have not placed your hope in the Lord Jesus and looked to him for salvation— Imagine being caught in a storm, and you toss out anchor, but you realize the anchor wasn't tied off to anything, and you just watch it go straight down to the bottom. It's there, but you're not 
tied to it. Now, you could talk about how wonderful that anchor is. You could say that you're safe because of your anchor, but if you're not connected to it, if you're not tethered to it, it does you no good and you'll drift away. That's the warning about those who have false faith. You may be talking about how great Jesus is, but if your life is not growing in maturity, then you should not believe that you are tethered to him. If he is not the grounds of your eternal hope, then you can talk about him all day long. But when you need that anchor, it's not going to be attached at all. And you'll drift away. And one day the judgment will come and you'll have nothing to hold on to. And you will be swept away if you are not anchored to Jesus Christ. And you will stand condemned in your sins under the eternal wrath of God in hell. You see, beloved, when God saw Jesus in the sinner's place, he did not spare Jesus. But when he sees unbelievers without Christ, he will not spare them. And so our anchor must be, it must be Christ. We must be tethered to this sure and steadfast hope. <coughs> Now, of course, it matters where we toss that anchor, doesn't it? And so look at verse 19. He says that we're anchored to a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. So the metaphor is shifting here from anchor to curtain. Now, what's the curtain that he's talking about? It's the Old Testament reference to that curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from, from the rest of the temple. And if you remember the Holy of Holies, it's the place that only once per year, one person, the high priest, could go and, and make offerings for the people. It symbolized the presence of God. And so the message of the Old Testament was, you can't go into the presence of God without a high priest, without a sacrifice. And no one could see through that curtain. And the Holy of Holies was inaccessible to all but the high priest for one day a year and to everyone else for 365 days out of the year. Now, do you remember what happened when Jesus died? That curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. That's an amazing reality. But what Hebrews is going to tell us that's even greater than that is that that earthly temple that earthly holy of holies was just a replica of the heavenly holy of holies and that jesus our great high priest has entered in on our behalf and he remains there day after day where he ever lives to intercede for us and so hebrews is saying when you dropped anchor do you realize where that anchor went? Most anchors drop downward. This anchor went upward into heaven. And if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you're tethered there. It passed through the skies into heaven where, where it went unhindered into the most holy place where, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, according to Hebrews 1.3. Our lives are tethered to heaven. And so as believers, that's what we hold on to, is the Lord Jesus. That's why it goes on to call Jesus our forerunner, our prodromos in Greek. 
A forerunner is one who goes before others to prepare the way. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told the disciples in John 14? Will you look there with me? The disciples were anxious as they knew what was coming, that Jesus' looming death was coming. And in verse 1, John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, that's talking about the forerunner work there. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And of course, Thomas has to pipe up, doubting Thomas. says, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ, our forerunner, has gone ahead of us to make a way. That means that no matter what storms may come, Jesus is surely and quietly seated in control at the right hand of the Father. And what he's doing right now is he's preparing a place for you. And just as importantly, as these storms come into our life, he's preparing you for that place. He's causing you to love Him. He's, he's, he's uh, shaping your heart through the trials of this life so that you long for that day. You long to be with your forerunner. And so that our, the eyes of our hearts become fixed on the world to come where Jesus is. That's why again and again, Hebrews has the same message. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's going to say it again and again and again. Because it knows, the author knows, we get too concerned with the affairs of this world. And when we do, life goes from crisis to crisis, doubt to doubt. But when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, and we are diligent to trust Him, all is well. The nail-pierced hands of Christ are sufficient to hold all of our concerns. See, all this talk of anchors and curtains and forerunners has one purpose. God wants us to understand that when the storms come, instead of looking outward to circumstances or inward to ourselves, we look upward to where Jesus is. The Lord, in the Gospels, the Lord slept in the storm, not because he didn't care, but because he was in perfect control. The gospel is a balm to the anxious, doubting soul. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a hymn that's almost entirely based on this passage. And you've probably sung this hymn a hundred times in your life. And you may never have realized, oh, this is just Hebrews 7. I had no idea. But we're going to sing about his oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. That's just Hebrews 7. When the storms of doubt come, the stubbornness of God holds on to us because of what Jesus has done as our steadfast hope. Think about the second stanza. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. That's simply the stubbornness of God 
that he doesn't change his mind. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. What veil? The curtain where Jesus has gone. F.F. Bruce, a commentator, has an amazing concluding comment summarizing this whole passage. He says, we are refugees from the sinking ship of this present world order so soon to disappear. Our hope is fixed in the eternal order where the promises of God are made good to his people in perpetuity. Our hope based upon his promises is our spiritual anchor. And, and, and Bruce says that, that image of the anchor, the figure of the anchor is not pressed. All that is meant is that we are moored, we're attached, we're tethered to an immovable object, and the immovable object is the throne of God himself. How do we apply this text? Let me give you a couple things. First, this passage is just wonderful evidence of the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is inspired by God. Do you realize the Bible is written by dozens of different authors on multiple continents over the span of at least 1,500 years? How in the world could those dozens of authors over 1,500 years on multiple continents have known how badly you and I would need the assurance of the faith even today. How could they have known that? They could not. They had no idea how badly we would need this passage today. But God did. It's one of the testimonies that this book is inspired because uh, this letter 2,000 years old is sufficient to dispel the doubts and struggles that you and I have today in 2022. Second, this text reminds us what to do when we don't feel the presence of God. You know, people love to say things like, I could just feel the, the Holy Spirit all over the place. And they may well. But what about the days where we don't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit? And what about the days where we don't have that sort of uh, emotional overwhelmedness? Sometimes what will happen is if that's all people's Christianity is rooted in, then they begin to question the authenticity of their faith. Or they get bored with Christianity when that happens. You know what we should do instead? When we, as we sing, when darkness veils his lovely face, we rest on his unchanging grace. We, we, we rest not on our feelings, but on his character. And so even if I can't feel it, I cling to the truths of who God is. You know, especially when I don't feel it, that's when I need to cling to him the most. Third, finally, in our current com uh, season of comfort and ease, we need to diligently labor to teach our souls to trust in Christ. You know, the American church has enjoyed relative ease in the Christian life for most of our lifetimes. You know, at least when we compare it with our brothers and sisters around the world who suffered even this morning for their faith, 
But it's likely for you and me that the cost of following Christ will soon go up as Christians are going to be increasingly marginalized and even villainized in society. You you already feel the cost going up, don't you? And some of, uh, many Christians are having to weigh, is the Lord Jesus worth it? You know, if, if we merely outwardly profess to be Christians, but we love this world too much, and we think that we should just float to heaven on flowery beds of ease, as Spurgeon said, we tend to hope in this world more than we hope in the Savior. You and I, in this moment of relative prosperity and ease, we need to train ourselves not to hope in this world, but to hope in the world to come. See, everything else can be taken from us, but if our hope rests in the anchor, beyond the curtain, our forerunner, Jesus Christ, Nothing in this world can ever take that away. And your faith will be durable enough to survive what comes. So let us proactively prepare for that now, because it will one day come. Let's pray together. Lord God, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh Lord, I pray that you would teach us to cling to Jesus Christ, to hold fast to that anchor and to rest in the great assurance that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Father, we pray that we would truly treasure Jesus Christ above all else. We pray it in his name.